everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. I wanted to talk today about some Supreme Court cases that'll be coming up, probably starting in the fall, because that's when the next term of the Supreme Court happens. They actually just ended their last term at the end of June or early July, but their next term starts in October. So, I know it's been a lot, and I've done a lot of talking about the Supreme Court in the last few podcasts, but I did want to talk about some things that are set to be decided on by the Supreme Court that you definitely will be hearing more about in the coming months. So the first one is Moore v. Harper, and that case examines a legal theory that would grant state legislatures more power over federal elections. So it gives the state the power to affect a federal election. Now, generally speaking, federal elections are where you elect, you know, the president and vice president. That's the big one, right? That's the one that most people vote for every four years. So there are some lawmakers that said that the state court lacks the authority to reject the legal theory called the independent state legislator doctrine, which is derived from the U.S. Constitution. And it started in North Carolina. So it was a Republican-led legislature in North Carolina. And basically, there was a map drawn by the legislature that was rejected by the state Supreme Court for partisan gerrymandering and violating the state constitution. So the North Carolina Supreme Court said that it would be bad for the sovereignty of the states. And they said, quote, it would produce absurd and dangerous consequences, unquote. So if the Supreme Court's if the Supreme Court decides to side with the doctrine, then that would give state lawmakers the power to redistrict and choose the election procedures, which would include whether or not the people within the state are mailed ballots that they could return by mail if they have to go in person, like the times, I'm sure that would include the times of the polling places being open and closed, where they would be positioned, all that stuff. And because it's a Supreme Court case, even though this is being originally fought in North Carolina, it would have overwhelming effects for other U.S. states as well. So there is another one that I thought was interesting, which was the students for fair act, excuse me, students for fair admissions challenges to affirmative action. So there's two cases and it challenges the consideration of race in college admissions processes or affirmative action, as some of you have heard of it before. But one of these is against Harvard and the other one's against the University of North Carolina. So North Carolina, you know, they get two, I guess, this time. Both schools are said to discriminate against Asian American applicants because, you know, the inclined, excuse me, the accusation is that because they give students the chance to specify what race they are, that they're considering students of varied races who may not be as strong of candidates. Now, I did talk about this before, <laughs> specifically with, I forgot it was called the, ca- the court case, but it was in Texas with the young woman who was trying to get into the University of Texas, I believe at Austin. And she was saying that it was reverse discrimination, even though she wasn't among like the candidates, like her, her high school scores or her GPA were not what they were of the people who were admitted right out of high school. And they had offered her a, a 
later enrollment date, like the next year, all she had to do was go to a community college for that year and keep a 3.0 and she refused, right? And we went to the Supreme Court. This is something that I've talked about before in my classes specifically, because I don't know much about North Carolina, which is a state school and how their admission process is. But with Harvard, they have, I've read, a two-step admission system. So one of them, one of those steps is the paper application, right? So what you submit regarding who you are, your transcript, all that stuff, your qualifications, your packet. But the other part of the admission process is an interview. In person, before the pandemic, I think it's been done, what I've read over video, like Zoom, the last few years, they the panel of people score you. I don't know how, (laughs) I didn't get to read how, like what their criteria is, but typically the Asian students score much lower in that second part of the interview. So even if they have very strong admission packets for the first part, when they get to the second part where they're critiqued based on that criteria, they are not scoring high enough to get admitted. Now, I've read a couple years ago that I think it was a Chinese American group, but in general, they were suing on behalf of Asian American that they were not able to get into these Ivy League schools because of that selection process for admissions, that somehow based on cultural differences, they were not coming across as personable, you know, in the opinion of the people, I guess, who are supposed to be scoring them. And so they were scoring lower and therefore weren't being admitted. Now, I said back then, I don't think this is really about the school itself as it is about the legacy of the school. Because for those of you who are familiar, most of the people who go to Ivy League schools, like the overwhelming majority, like, and I mean, like the overwhelming multiple G's at the end. Majority of students who go to those schools are legacies. So their parents went to school there, their grandparents went to school there. They've been going to that university for multiple generations. And so, I mean, and I've been at, you know, parties where if someone said, oh, you know, I went to an Ivy League, like they got, you know, all the, all the girls would flock over. (laughs) Not me. But the idea being that that's the key to other things, right? That if you went to that school, it's very likely that your child will get to go to that school, whether or not they are they are as strong of a candidate as someone else. And I think that it'll be interesting to see. Oh, let me finish my thought. I'm sorry. So I thought that was interesting. And I said that it's not so much, I don't think it's so much about these students, these Asian American students not getting in initially, but not being able to establish that same legacy bridge for the future generations, right? Because people always want to make it easier for their kids. That's one of the benefits of going to that school, to those Ivy League schools anyway. But on the other side, I it'll be interesting to see how... They argue for not allowing other groups of people who they're saying are getting in by race, even though they're saying that their race is being excluded. (laughs) But I think it'll be interesting to see if it challenges the legacy system in general, right? Because, of course, if the overwhelming majority of the students, like 70 plus percent of all the admitted students are legacies, then the question could be, have they really earned the spot at that school? Are they competitive candidates to go to those schools? Or are they just being admitted because their parents and grandparents went there? 
And I also think it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out because many of the people who are on the Supreme Court went to these, you know, private universities or know people who went to these private universities. So it's really calling into question the system that a lot of them have been through and who know people who have benefited from. So we'll see how that comes out. But that was one of the cases that is going to be decided. Like I said, I don't know how it is for the North Carolina State University for their admissions, but there are many people who argue that if you have a potential to mark what your race is, that that could be considered as part of your admission package, right? When they're deciding who they are and aren't going to let in, the idea being that they are letting in people from other groups of people to make it more diverse, not necessarily just on paper, like this is what you need to get in. Now, California doesn't do that. They haven't for many decades. And actually, affirmative action used to be for white people. So a book that I highly recommend you read, especially if you've been to college or have ever heard, you know, people or wondered, oh, is someone here because of affirmative action or no matter how you feel about it, it was created to help white women get into college. And the really great book about this is called When Affirmative Action Was White, and it's by Ira Katznelson, K-A-T-Z-N-E-L-S-O-N. And lastly, another case that's coming up is called Merrill v. Milligan, and that is in Alabama. And it's kind of piggybacking off of what I mentioned about North Carolina, but it's about the state's ability to rewrite and to redraw its congressional district maps. The lower courts said that it violated the Voting Rights Act or the VRA and was would disproportionately affect and discriminate against black voters when it was, you know, proposed to be redrawn. And because it was rejected at the state level, that is why it's going up to the Supreme Court. And so it's kind of in the same line as North Carolina. And like I mentioned, this case is going to set a precedent for Louisiana State as well, because they had an initiative to do the same thing, but they're waiting to see how this case comes about with Alabama. So like I mentioned with the first case, Moore v. Harper, that if you're going to have a state that's going to be able to just redraw the congressional maps, it's going to change the voting power for each group. We know that that's going to affect the number of representatives that are tallied up and how the county is coded. You know, usually when you see like an election map, they'll say, oh, it's red or blue, or it'll have like purple or stripes or whatever. It'll tell you like who in that population voted or who in that county or parish or group voted and how that affects the outcome of a state election and especially federal elections like with the presidents of the United States. So those things are coming about in the fall. And I know that a lot of you are probably more focused on the Supreme Court in the last year or two than you have ever been in your lives. But the Supreme Court is very important. You can always Google cases that they're going to be deciding over. It's always a really great idea. I know that, you know, we've had three justices sworn in in the last two years so it's always a good idea to look at like who is on the bench which congressional districts they oversee because i believe there are nine districts and each of them occupies one or two of those districts so it'll be interesting to see it'll be interesting for you to see who is sort of tasked with keeping up with which district that's very important 
And, you know, it's also a good time to get familiar with the process for what it would take to a case to make its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, because it does have to go through the lower courts and then the state courts and the state circuit until, I mean, excuse me, before it is brought up to the federal level with the Supreme Court for a final decision. And as we've learned the last few months, it's not always a final decision because things can be overturned and it can cause other cases to be highlighted again or put back into place as a result of something being taken out, right? How will it affect the rest of the things, the rest of the cases on that same tree branch? So I'm going to go ahead and end this episode. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.